You're listening to Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais of Calvary Anaheim. To find out more, go to calvaryanaheim.org. And now, here's Pastor James. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 4, as we're going verse by verse through the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel was consecrated to the Lord by Hannah and Elkanah and then established as a prophet as the word of God came to him and then continued to come to him. And he would pass those messages from God on to the people. On the other hand, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were corrupt and they didn't know God. Remember, they were pilfering from the Lord's portion of the sacrifices and the people abhorred the sacrifices. So they were causing the people to stumble. Eli, Hophni and Phinehas' dad and high priest at the time, was warned by God for not restraining his sons. He was told, you're going to suffer the consequences for this. Your family line will be cut off from the priesthood. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will die on the same day. And so we see this time of the judges continuing as we're getting to Samuel. In fact, we're told in the scriptures tonight that Eli judged Israel for 40 years. And so he was um, a judge in Israel, just like the judges back in the book of Judges. And we see this cycle in the book of Judges, don't we, where the people would have a good period of time under a righteous judge where they would seek the Lord, generally speaking, and put him first, but then that judge would die and they would slip away and they would begin to worship false gods and be influenced by the pagan nations around them. And then God would bring judgment and they would uh, then be um, oppressed by a neighboring country until they would cry out to the Lord for help God would hear their cries, and he would send a judge, and with that came repentance. And so they would have this cycle. This is continuing, and we're seeing now that under Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, the people aren't doing so well. And that brings us in tonight's chapter, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Um, According to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Philistines were the aggressors here, not Israel. And encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Verse 2, Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And so who were the Philistines? Well, they were the dominant culture in Israel, or the location of Israel, for about 150 years off and on, until King David. They were believed to have migrated from the Aegean Sea area, which is, you know, you think of Greece and you think of the western coast of of Turkey. 
Uh, they were called the sea peoples by the Egyptians. Remember the stories in the Bible of Abimelech and Abraham lied uh, to Abimelech and said, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And then you remember Isaac did the same thing. Well, the Bible says in Genesis that Abimelech was the leader of the Philistines. Uh, beyond the Bible, we know of them through Egyptian reliefs and excavations. Uh, technologically, they were superior to the Israelites. They, have, they had advanced, meta, met, I can't even say the word, metallurgy. I, I, I butchered it. They worked with metal really well. How's that? And, uh, and so they had advanced weaponry made of bronze and iron where the Israelites did not. Remember, they were Samson's enemies. All those stories of Samson, all of his strength, and he killed a thousand of them with the the jawbone of a donkey. So that was with Samson and the Philistines. In war, they had infantry. They had chariots. They perhaps had a cavalry. They had sword spears. Spears were the five foot uh, for stabbing. And then they had javelins for throwing. They had archers and shields and body armor with leather and metal. So I say this just so you can get some kind of a picture in your mind of what the Israelites would be up against with the Philistines who had been their oppressors and now continued to be their oppressors. Now in Psalms 33:12, we have that scripture up here. It says, "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance." Blessed is that nation. Now, this is speaking generally of nations, but God had made some very specific promises to Israel as his chosen people. And so let's look at a couple more scriptures on this. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 6, it says, For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. This was a conditional promise to the Israelites based on whether or not they kept the law of God that was delivered to them through Moses. Deuteronomy 28, 13 says, And the Lord shall make you the head and not the tail. And you shall be above only, and you shall not be beneath, if that you hearken unto the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day to observe and to do them. And so we see Israel then going out against this enemy, this foreign power that has been oppressing them, and they lose. And that should be an indication to them that something is not right. Remember when Joshua came against Ai? And surprisingly, you know, this right off the, you know, off of Jericho, they did so amazing against Jericho and God fought for them and the walls fell down and it was amazing. And now they go against the next one thinking, I will just send a few people over there and take care of it. And they lost. Why? Because in Jericho, they had sin in the camp. Remember that guy Achan, and he stole stuff when he wasn't supposed to? He took, he took loot when he wasn't supposed to, and he lied about it. And so they had to purge the sin from the camp, and then God gave them the victory. And so here, 
is something similar with Hophni and Phinehas going out of control, right, in their leadership, and then Eli not restraining them. And so they should have stopped here and said, okay, it's time to assess. Let's pray and ask God what's going on. What's going on? Is there something that we need to repent of and to change? But remember, this is the time of the judges, and there's no king in the land, and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So instead of that, they do verse 3. So let's take a look at verse 3. It says, And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice how they say, Why has the Lord defeated us today? They recognized that it's not by horse and chariot and strongman that the victory comes, but it's by the Lord. So this is a very good question to ask, but they don't wait for an answer. Instead, they come up with their own way of solving the problem, and they go on in the middle of verse 3, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. So they have this great idea, I say that with some sarcasm, to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? If you've seen Indiana Jones, you know, or if you read the Bible. And so, the Ark, the, the word Ark is Old English for chest, and that's exactly what the Ark was. It looked like a toy box. It was about four feet long and three feet wide and three feet high, approximately. And it was made of acacia wood and then overlaid with pure gold. And it had a lid on it made of gold, and that was called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat were two cherubim or angels. Don't think cherubs like we know them today. Two mighty warrior angels. They were kneeling down, facing each other, wings outstretched towards one another, and heads bowed down, looking at the mercy seat at the lid. They originally contained a measure of manna, which represented God's provision, Aaron's rod that budded, which represented the priesthood. Do you remember that when the people were questioning Aaron's authority, they prayed, you know, God said, look, I'm going to prove to these people that Aaron is the one, and he made his dead stick bud and come to life. And so they put that stick into the Ark of the Covenant. And then finally, the tablets that contained, contained the Ten Commandments that had been written on with the finger of God, which represented the law. All of these things at one time were contained in the Ark of the Covenant. It was kept as the only furnishing in the Holy of Holies or the holiest place in the tabernacle. So you remember that the tabernacle had a curtains around it, 
and, and then you would enter a courtyard, and there was the altar, the brazen altar, where the animal sacrifices were made that foreshadowed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then there was the brazen laver where they would wash their hands and get the blood off so then they can go into the tabernacle proper, the tent. And there in the first room was the, uh, you know, the candelabra, the menorah, and then the table of showbread, and then they had the altar of incense, and behind that, the veil that separated the holy place from the holiest of holies. The place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. And within that room was the Ark of the Covenant, representing God's presence on earth. And only once a year could one man, the high priest that year, enter into the holiest of holies after he had sacrificed for his own sins on the Day of Atonement and for the sins of the people. And he would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the lid, the lid. And then if he made it out alive, the sins of the people were forgiven. The sacrifice was accepted. It was accepted. And so this ark represented the presence of God on earth God used it as a seat. I, you know, I never thought about that before when I was reading mercy seat. I always thought it just seated itself, and that's probably true too, you know, as a lid. But this is where God spoke to Moses from between the wings of the cherubim. God's presence was there. He was seated there with Moses, and they would have their conversations. The Bible says he talked to Moses, as we mentioned last week, face to face like a friend, like one friend talking to another. Quite astonishing, actually. Now, this is called the Ark of the Covenant. A covenant is an agreement, a contract. And it's referring to the Old Testament or the old agreement, the old contract, the Mosaic Covenant. And we get that summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting at verse 26. And I do believe we have that on our screen for you right now. Deuteronomy 11:26. it says, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. And so there's the blessing and there's the curse and it's based on their behavior. It's based on their obedience to the law that God laid down, also summarized in the Ten Commandments. All right, let's take a look at verse 5 now. So remember now, back to where we are in our story, they're taking this Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies and into battle. They've heard nothing from God. It just seems like a great idea. If we take this relic out with us, perhaps God will go with us too. Verse 5, And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, 
all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Whoa, they were so excited about the ark being in their midst, assuming that God would be there too with them. What were they doing? They were really trusting in a relic rather than God. Have you ever met someone wearing a cross around their, their neck? And you say, oh, wow, that's great. You know, are you a Christian? Well, I don't, I don't really know. I just wear it. It's, you know, I've talked to people like that. And you're just like, oh, well, let me tell you more about what that cross represents. And it's a great witnessing opportunity. But you see, a lot of people will wear the cross or carry, you know, some kind of emblem around with them for superstition. But it's nothing but a chunk of metal or a piece of wood. And that's all it is. And it doesn't do us any good. You see, God wants us to worship him and not relics. He wants us to trust in him and not in really in little trinkets that we might hope bring us good luck. We want to be with good God instead of good luck and trust that he's the one who has our lives in his hand, every detail of our lives. And we can rest in that. And it doesn't matter what happens to the things of this world the material of this world that's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. And so it says here that the whole camp let out a shout because they were confident that now that they had the ark, the ark was going to save them, forgetting the God behind the ark. And so let's beware of trusting in representations rather than the real deal. God is about relationship, not about superstition and relics. And so they assume that he is for them when actually, right now, according to the law, which is why we spent time talking about that, they're under a curse. They're under a curse because of their leadership, and their leadership has led them astray. And they're not going to be blessed, as we will find out next. Verse 6. Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Now, these are super superstitious people, too. And they're like, Oh, no, the ark is in the camp. In verse 7. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. Well, at least they're looking to God and not just the relic. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Number one, we know that there's no, we're not talking about a, a bunch of gods. <laughs> we're talking about one God, one God. And they were right to fear him because they knew the stories. They had heard the, the, the stories of old and how God, what God did for these people. And so they were terrified, and they were right to be terrified. Verse 9, 
And so they say, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. And so here we get an indication of the relationship between the Philistines and the Hebrews that the Hebrews were sub subjugated under the Philistines. They were oppressed. They had to pay tribute. Perhaps the Philistines would come through and collect the tax of, of their grain and such from them, which was very common in the book of Judges that we read. And so they're saying, we don't want, to, we don't want that position flipped, and now we're under the service of the Hebrews. And so they say, let's fight. Now remember that they were right to be afraid of God, but they were wrong to fight him. They were wrong to fight him. How arrogant man is. We are just such prideful people that we think we could fight against God. You know, even Christians, our pride runs so deep that even as believers who've received Jesus Christ as our Savior and we have an understanding of who God is more than anybody else, do you still find yourself fighting with God? You still find yourself when he gives a directive or a command in our lives, when he reminds us of what the word says and it's contrary to what we're saying or what we're doing or what we're thinking and we find ourselves sometimes not surrendering to him. And so let's remember that we are but dust and that we still have sin nature but let's let the divine nature win out over sin nature. Let's surrender ourselves to the Lord and to the prompting of his Holy Spirit. Go with God. His way, friends, is the best way every single time. But these people who do not know God, but they do know how mighty he is, they decide they want to fight him anyway. You know, this is going to continue through humanity until the end. Let's take a look at Revelation 16.10. In Revelation 16, we have the bowls of wrath being poured out. These are the heavy-duty wrath. You know, we've had the trumpets, and we've had the seals and the trumpets, and now we're getting to the bowls as things really intensifies. And it says, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, speaking of the Antichrist, and his kingdom, because uh, became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, because of the pain as they're fighting against God. God says, are you sure you want to fight with me? I'm going to cover you in darkness. So dark, it's painful. And then verse 11 says, they blasphemed God, that was their reaction, of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Wow. This is the depths of the rebellious nature of mankind that we see played out over and over and over again in history. You would think after World War II and even the subsequent wars that we would learn our lesson and somehow not fight with each other. And yet here we are again today and we have atrocities being committed on the other side of the pond in Ukraine because of some prideful, arrogant-filled guy 
that says, this land is my land, it is not your land, you better get off or I'll blow your head off. And we know that, that wars are always much more complicated than that. War is terrible. But as the Bible teaches us in the last days, and there will be wars and rumors of wars, and it's because of prideful humanity. Prideful humanity. You've been listening to Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais of Calvary Anaheim in Anaheim, California. If you're in the area, we'd love for you to visit. Check out calvaryanaheim.org for location, service times, and more. We'd love to hear from you. To let us know how God has touched your life through this program or to submit a prayer request, simply go to calvaryanaheim.org and scroll down to the Get in Touch form at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to listen again next time for another edition of Word and Spirit with Pastor James Beauvais. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Anaheim. Hey everybody, this is Pastor James. We want to take advantage of the Christmas season to get the gospel out and see people get closer to Jesus. This is why we are partnering with Village Bible Church in Garden Grove to bring you a living nativity. The gymnasium at Village Bible Church will be transformed into the little town of Bethlehem. Travel back in time. Take a tour as you immerse yourself into the daily activities of Bethlehem and experience the story of Christmas like never before. This free event is Saturday, December 17th and Sunday, December 18th, anytime between 4 and 9 p.m. So mark your calendar, make some plans with your family, and don't miss this impactful Christmas experience. To learn more, go to villagebible.com forward slash living nativity. That's villagebible.com forward slash living nativity.